0: This podcast may include adult content. Boundoff is an independent, non-profit audio magazine committed to paying authors for their work. To join us in our mission of broadcasting great stories to a worldwide audience, please consider dropping us a dollar or two at boundoff.com donate. Welcome to Boundoff, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have two stories. The Informant, by Roman Saskue, and Refuse Meadow, by Adrian Doris The Informant Written and read by Roman Saskew Listening time 10 minutes 25 seconds
1: The informant had been a colonel in Saddam's Republican Guard He was a slim older man of medium height with a well-groomed mustache and serious face He wore western-style clothes pressed khakis and a clean white shirt and sat alertly in one of the plastic lawn chairs Captain Yonah saw his neat clothes and grave manner and believed right away that he had indeed been a colonel. They shook hands, and Captain Yonah sat in the remaining chair in the dimly lit room where one of the counterintelligence guys, Dan, lived and worked. Dan's interpreter was there, as was Captain A. Clare, the hearts and minds guy, leaning his chair against the wall. He waved cheerfully at Yona. The colonel's knees bounced nervously. He watched Captain Yona the way soldiers watch a newly arrived first sergeant, measuring him, unsure of his temperament. This is Captain Yona, Dan told the colonel. His men will conduct the search. The colonel listened carefully as the interpreter translated. He offered a curt nod. Good, he said in a thick accent. He wants to be arrested like everyone else, Dan told Captain Yona, so that nobody suspects him. The colonel had made a difficult decision and looked determined to see it through. That's what makes a good leader, Captain Yonah thought. The courage to make decisions and accept consequences. Soldiers respond to that. He wondered if the colonel was one of those whose strict discipline was understood and accepted. The colonel said something in Arabic that made the interpreter smile. He says don't fuck it up this time. He says last time the guy's hid in a ditch right next to one of your Humvees, so he says don't fuck it up. The interpreter seemed proud of the colloquialism, or perhaps for the opportunity to blamelessly relay criticism. This was the problem. Captain Yona couldn't know for sure if the interpreter was being a smartass, or if it was the colonel. They weren't my Humvees, Captain Yona said. That was another company. Dan laughed at Yona's reaction, then handed him the close-up image of the objective, It was a large compound with too many rooms and courtyards and irrigation ditches and a nearby cluster of date palms. Captain Yonah spread it on the floor between them. He thinks you guys should come in here, Dan said, pointing, and send the soldiers here and here in case they try to run. Sergeant Woodruff, Captain Yonah said to Dan, emphasizing the rank. This isn't your fight. You're C.I. Tell me what I need to know and get out of my way. Captain Yona would be damned if he'd let some Iraqi, any Iraqi, tell him where to send his soldiers. Dan might trust the guy because his job was to talk to people, but unlike Dan, Yona carried the responsibility and burden of combat and would be damned if he'd trust anyone. Dan sucked his lip. Roger, sir, he said, with more sarcasm than Captain Yona would have tolerated from one of his own men. These counterintelligence guys... Dan, Mike, Steve, they need to be reminded every once in a while that they're still in the army, Captain Yona thought. If you're finished telling me how to run my company, I'd like to speak with the colonel. Dan sat back and raised his hands defensively. The colonel looked from him to Captain Yonah, and it was clear he understood their conversation well, or at least the type of conversation. He didn't seem at all affected by the tension it created, and Captain Yona decided he really had been a good experienced leader. Perhaps he'd been a company commander during the war with Iran. Captain Yona wondered how much fighting he'd seen. Probably more than me, he thought. Yona turned his attention to the satellite image and spoke through the interpreter to confirm what he'd been told about the objective. He asked about numbers of men, women, children, locations, traffic patterns, quality of roads, heights of walls, locations of doors, ditches, egress routes weapons in the compound he made marks on the satellite image as they spoke even from a seemingly reliable source intelligence usually turned out to be complete bullshit but captain yona wanted to give his platoon leaders the specifics anyway he believed the adage no plan survives first contact with the enemy but thought it better to have a specific plan that gets adjusted on the objective he asked dan for the image of the surrounding area Dan thumbed through his notebook, then pulled a crate from under his cot and searched it. "'Should I come back later, when you're done fucking around?' Captain Yona asked. Dan's eyes met Yona's. "'I'll be right back,' he said. Daylight squeezed through the sheets of plywood covering the windows. Books and twisted sleeping bags lay on the cots, uniforms were scattered across the floor, and two filthy day-old dinner trays sat in the corner a typical counterintelligence hooch. He probably thinks we're a complete goat rodeo, Captain Yona thought, but maybe they had guys like this in their army too. A taped up poncho hung over the maps on their walls. Standard procedure when locals enter the room, at least they had that right. The colonel mashed his cigarette and drew another. He gestured with the open pack. Captain Yona refused. The medics had been talking up a link between the pneumonia outbreak and the cigarettes many soldiers bought from the locals in the few months since the invasion. Captain A. Claire, who'd been sitting quietly against the wall, said, I'll have one. Always nice to take a little smoke break. He spoke amiably, stupidly even, as if eager to diffuse the tension by making a buffoon of himself. He was in the room only because of his relationship with the colonel. Eclair was in charge of reconstruction and had initially been approached while touring rundown elementary schools. The counterintelligence guys worked through him to convince the colonel to come in. He has over two hundred jumps, Captain Eclair told Yona, as he tucked the cigarette behind his ear. A few with the Russian army. The Colonel exchanged a few quiet words with the interpreter. And he calls you guys commandos, Captain Aclair continued in their army. Anybody who jumps from a plane is a commando. Captain Yona watched the colonel smoke, he wondered what had made him become an informant. Perhaps he saw loved ones killed in the violence. Captain Yona tried to imagine himself in the colonel's position. He couldn't see himself becoming an informant. I have just forty jumps, Captain Yona said to the interpreter. The colonel listened then pointed to his knees and said something shaking his head he says it is bad for the knees especially when you become an old man like him yes captain yona said smiling very bad yona had once jumped with an estonian officer who visited fort bragg and now he imagined the colonel sitting next to him in a c-130 hercules heavy in their equipment, their hands resting on their reserve parachutes, the loadmaster lifting the door as they approached the drop zone, the roaring wind snaking down the row of jumpers. Captain Yona imagined the conflicting feelings of fear and resolve, a sensation known to all paratroopers, and one he believed made them brothers. It would be nice to do that, Yona thought, jump with the colonel, then shake hands and go our respective ways, as he'd done with the Estonian officer. It was simple. The only jump I make from a plane is onto the tarmac, said Captain Aclaire. The interpreter began explaining this to the colonel but paused. What is a tarmac he asked? Aclaire explained then clarified, I only jump from a plane after it's landed. The interpreter explained and the colonel nodded politely, appearing unsure of the joke. After the plane lands, only then I jump out, Captain Aclaire said again. Dan returned, waving the satellite image, and the interpreter didn't bother translating again. Dan handed the image to Captain Yona, who spread it over the first. He asked the colonel more questions about the objective and the surrounding area. When they finished, Captain Yona folded the imagery and slipped it into his cargo pocket. He stood, shook hands with the colonel, who grabbed his forearms and spoke to the interpreter. He says to remember that you should take him prisoner so that no one will think anything is wrong. Captain Yonah made fists and tapped his wrists together, showing the colonel. Tell him he'll be flex-cuffed and have a sandbag put over his head. Captain Yonah pulled down an imaginary hood, just like everybody else. Good, said the colonel with a grave nod. Good. They shook hands again. Good luck, Captain Yonah said. ''You good luck,'' replied the colonel. A blast of light struck Captain Yona when he exited. It was bright and extremely hot. He and Eclair walked across the motor pool. Captain Yona thought about the colonel. He wondered what he'd do in the colonel's situation, and again concluded that under no circumstances could he imagine himself becoming an informant. He wondered if many of the colonel's men were killed during the invasion or if the colonel had abandoned his post like many Iraqi officers. He didn't seem like a man who'd abandon his post. "'Why is he doing this?' Captain Yona asked. "'Well, I think he's just a patriot, you know. "'I think many of the better-educated people, "'even if they were Bathists or whatever, "'they're just sick of all the violence. "'He probably wants what's best for the Iraqi people, "'and he's fed up with the troublemakers.' "'They walk the rest of the way in silence.' Captain Yona wondered a little longer about the colonel, but he had many things to do to prepare his company for the mission, and they soon occupied his thoughts.
0: Roman is a six-year Army veteran with tours in Afghanistan and Iraq. His war writing has appeared in The Atlantic, the New York Times' Home Fires blog, the Mises Institute website, on dailyanarchist.com and elsewhere. Refuse Meadow Written and read by Adrian Doris. Listening time, 11 minutes.
2: More than a week here gets you named. Egon Sheila because of his stump and his body at bad angles. Pope Pius has a vial of holy water shoestrung around his neck. Says, Amen and God bless and sinner. Carries signs around town and wears a beard. Stephen Hockey knows somehow what Jimmy Johnson says and Jimmy Johnson looks like the coach but with dirty fingernails and a great big spatula. Bruce Banner because nobody likes him when he's angry all night every night. Dan Rather reads the paper out loud. Roger Tory Peterson gets hard and touches himself when a hawk angles out of the sky and talons a rat, cries when a robin's egg breaks. I have fits, see possibilities when I'm wide of the eye and tongue-bitten. I'm Tesla. Saturday night when Jimmy Johnson's grave hits pay dirt, the moon is a rind, the wind is panicky, and I'm working my bootless toes through the loops of a plastic shopping bag, letting it catch gust like a riddled flag, raising it high on Night Train Hill when Jimmy Johnson Hill marries his spatula and screams, Obi-Dobi, Obi-Dobi, Obi-Dobi! Out of his grave he rises and I sit up, letting the bag go and kite into the night, through a smear of halogen and towards the interstate rumbling over there. The others get quiet, except for Bruce Banner, who's retching the last of his anger into a cat hole. Obi-dobi! Jimmy Johnson screams with something in his hand that catches light. Boots on, we go to Jimmy Johnson's grave and Stephen Hawking says, Jimmy Johnson's found what he's been digging for. Stephen Hawking, Rosetta stoning all the Obidobies, so we can understand. To me, the thing in Jimmy Johnson's hand looks like an empty 10W-30 bottle, but Stephen Hawking says it's the chalice from Jimmy Johnson's dreams, his ticket out of here. I say, am I the only one? And I point at the black plastic and the peeling dirt cake label, and the others, Egon, Sheila, Pope Pius, Dan Rather, and Roger Tory Peterson, say shut up and look at it like pilgrims just arrived. I try to blink the chalice into view, then I'm thirsty, very, and I go back to Night Train Hill. Later, in a twirl of Mack truck shifting and paper bag huffing, I hear girls in a way that's like smelling them. They're laughing and goofing with Aristotle, Onassis, and JFK, brown bottles sloshing around a fire of road clothes signs. Aristotle, Onassis, and JFK are that because they like to lay the same girl and trade punches and stories later. But tonight there are two, one for each. No more than fifteen, these girls are tourists here at Refuse Meadow. Out to piss off moms or boyfriends and do some growing up. Egon Sheila says, check it out. Soaks the ether rag again and drops it into the McDonald's sack. Grease stains, rorschach kidneys, spleens and other guts. I check it out. The two girls with tight tops and lips sealing around the bottle and I huff. Eyes going silly putty in my sockets, night and fire fighting like brothers. Egon Sheila massages his stump and says, Oh man. I say, Nothing wrong with looking. But when I reach for the bag again, it's gone, and Egon Sheila is off, his one arm out, and offering huffs to the girls, and JFK, and Aristotle Onassis. I sleep in the knee high grass, a place that holds water after it rains. Bottles and needles and granny-knotted condoms are the exotics here. My sleeping bag has the smell of a pissed-in basement. When I hear them, I wake up just long enough to have a fit, the screams going operatic in a flash of eye-cornered nausea. The stars rolling into my brain pan, tracers and burnt celluloid. I see guns and muscled arms, uniforms with patches and glints, a bulldozer pushing up drifts of old cloth, bottles, and tire rubber, coercing it all into Jimmy Johnson's grave, his chalice down there somewhere, lost again. When I come to, the meadow is quiet, and there's vomit on my neck and blood in my mouth. I would like to sleep, but already the sky is pinking like a thing just born. Days We Disappear Squirrel our belongings in the trees, and walk into town for church meals, can collecting, and scaring tourists with sharpied signs like, "My pitbull has three balls and two convictions." Today, blue and bright, I walk in with Pope Pius, who fingers his cracked Bible for the perfect cardboard verse, saying something happened last night, canonical but not holy. And Pope Pius's beard are bits of ramen, looking dried and larval. I say. I heard screams, and ask, Did you hear them? On the sidewalk, a group smelling Irish sprung parts in front of us, getting distance and wrinkling brows and noses. For fun, I say in a big voice that my virus is really acting up, and that makes them move like the concrete is live-wired. Even Pope Pius smiles at that one. He stops there at a trash can, stirs the pot of waste, and comes out with a pizza box, weak with old oils. I say, well, did you? But Pope Pius has gone to Bible school, lips churning, grimy finger moving down a page. He sighs a soft, aha, kind of sound, and then works on his pizza box, his marker squeaking in a way that reminds me of cleaning toilets at the hospital, how I did my job for cigarettes and magazines. I'm about to yell at him, say something like, hey, Jimmy Faggart, I'm talking to you, but then he holds up his sign. If a man find a damsel in the field, and the man force her, and lie with her, then the man shall die. Deuteronomy twenty two twenty five. 25 I spend the morning in front of the breakfast spot, my dog food can taking in four bucks. Somewhere around brunch, I have a fit. Minor because when I open my eyes against a bright, like radioactive, I don't have any possibilities, just a throb, an everyday menace. A man asks all the same questions, and I give all the same answers, and the man leaves, never touching me. But in my dog food can is a twenty. Fits are a cash cow. Walking back, with meat in my gut and a bottle in my coat, I put the two fits together, and I know tonight here will be my last. Sunset on Night Train Hill, and Roger Tory Peterson is perched on a slab of crumbling concrete, watching a flicker corkscrew up a telephone pole. He keeps saying, Look at that. The flicker rat a the pole. Look at that. I hand him my bottle and he drinks, keeping his eyes on the bird. It's quiet tonight. Zegon, Sheila, JFK, and Aristotle Onassis have all gone. Hit the road in three different directions, says Dan, rather. Police drove by earlier, he says. Three cars going real slow. I say, What happened? Dan Rather folds back his newspaper and reads public safety, the shoplifted soy nuts, the yoga mat thievery, the the under-the-bridge advances, the domestically disturbed. Then, Dan Rather says, two females, ages 13 and 14. He raises his eyebrows, like to say, get this, or whoa, Betty. And then he goes on, reported that three transient men, okay, I say, enough, enough, and pull long and bitter on my bottle. The sun breaks on the rim of the world, smearing into night. The flicker flicks away, and Roger Tory Peterson grunts disappointment. I think for a second I might have another fit. I can sense the neon butterfly wings batting the corners, but they take off without me. Where's Jimmy Johnson, I ask. I look toward his grave, but there's no dirt spraying through the watermelon light. No obi Dobies echoing off the broken soil. Dan Rather says, he's in there asking why I should be next, but I don't. I already know. After dark, I decide on all night, crush many things into powdery lines and run them up my nose until I'm twining like a string-tuned way sharp. My mouth feels like space, like I could pluck the stars of my teeth from their gummy galaxy and not even scream about it. And my eyes, blinkless and veneered, what dolls must feel like. But I am here now, now here, and when they come, I will still be here, and when they leave, even then I will be here. The first thing is the low cutting of high air, flopping across the valley like the beat of a cranked heart. The second thing is a sudden quiet in a refuse meadow. Even the fire quits its pop and hiss, and no one says a word like prey ahead of slaughter. Then lights gut the darkness in a blood and bile flash. Engines scream and sirens wail. Tires shatter bottles and crunch backpacks. A column of swirled luminescence sweeps the ground and rats scatter, making breaks for dark pockets. Plastic bags flutter into the crackling sky. From the others come grunts of dismay, curses, the lurching but futile escape attempts. But the boots and the guns are fast, and I already know there's no point. I'm Bodhisattva. An electric statued monk, lotus atop Night Train Hill, watching my possibilities lock and load and arrive. One of them pistol whips Bruce Banner, knocks the anger and two teeth straight out of him. His mouth is a sputtering red curtain. Another one throws Roger Tory Peterson into the ground, and for the shaved second between latex grip and collision, Roger Torrey Peterson flies like a bird and smiles. A third one puts a gun in Dan Rather's face and says, On your knees! A fourth hand cussed me right where I sit, beams a flashlight into my dull eye, leaving a spot like oil on water. He says, junky trash, and tells me, don't move, which I can't, because now is when it happens. Now is when Jimmy Johnson rises from the dead, screaming, obi-dobi, obi-dobi, obi and crawls out of his grave, the chalice a dark thing in his hand, and oh, how silly I was to have ever doubted it. obi he says, and somewhere Stephen Hawking is trying to tell the men what he's saying. But the men see the chalice, not for what it is and not for what I thought it was, and before they can listen to Stephen Hawking, the black cats inside the trash can sound is everywhere. Jimmy Johnson and his chalice return to his grave, hitting pay dirt again.
0: Adrian Doris lives in Ashland, Oregon. His work has appeared in Blackbird, Burnt Bridge, The Portland Review, pindley Boz, and other journals. Listener-supported Boundoff is made possible by grants from the Kern Family Endowed Fund. Further support comes from the Google Grants Program. Thanks for listening to this edition of Boundoff, copyright Boundoff and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories.